You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this, this week's guest, very excited. Why? For two reasons. One, it is our 300th guest on the Hazard Ground here. As, uh, we have been coming up on our six-year anniversary. Just very excited to have done this for almost six years now and putting out 300 episodes of content that you and stories that you guys love to hear. So we're excited about that. But not only that, our guest is currently a military service member as a command sergeant major at one of the highest levels of the United States Army. We'll get to him in just a moment. But our first... Normal announcements, as always, with the holidays coming up here. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate that percentage back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. It's also simple to do from your smartphone. It redirects you right to the app. If all your credit card information is saved, really user-friendly and easy. So, again, hazardground.com first before you do your Amazon shopping here at the holidays as well follow us on all the social media sites facebook twitter and instagram at hazard ground at hazard ground podcast and of course continue to leave us those five-star reviews on apple Podcasts. that helps grow the show helps kick that algorithm in that gets us more views more notices more everything and become more popular we love this hazard ground community we appreciate you guys being part of it doesn't have to be a lengthy review something very short and sweet give us five stars tell us why you love the show and we'll even try to put you on our social media account as well that brings us to this week's guest Again, our 300th guest on the Hazard Ground, very happy to have him here. Enlisted in the Army in 1990. Over the course of the last 32 years, uh, among having assignments at every single major post throughout the United States Army, South Korea, uh, Fort Bragg, Fort Polk, Fort Meade, where else are we going here? Uh, Back to Fort Bragg again, 25th Infantry Division, Schofield Barracks. He's got multiple combat deployments, three to... Iraq, two to Afghanistan, K-417, several other uh, deployments and mobilizations around the world. He is currently the command sergeant major of Army's Future Command. And for those who don't know what Army's Future Command is, well, it's where the nerds hang out. But what they do is they basically get all of us the stuff we need to fight before we know we need to have it to fight. He is command sergeant major Brian Hester joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Sergeant Major, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks, Mark. I appreciate being here. I look forward to a spirited discussion today, and thanks for the, the great introduction. Um, you know, it's often when you hear somebody talk about it, you think to yourself, um, really not that important. I uh, really haven't really really done all that uh, all that great stuff, but, you know, it does add up over 32 years, and I'll, I'm just really happy to be here and, and share some experiences and some ideas uh, with you and the listeners. It's interesting. Uh, I'm curious when you took over the 25th because – I deployed under the 25th with uh, Major General Bernard Champeau was the CG at the time. You guys came in right after them? Well, I got there in 2017. Okay, so it was um, way after. I came, got it. Uh, yep. I was coming out of my uh, my third um, uh, the third tour in Iraq and, and ended up uh, getting selected by uh, the now uh, SHAPE Commander, General Cavoli, to come out and be the Command Sergeant Major for the 25th Infantry Division. My first time serving in the 25th, my first time serving in Hawaii, um, what a fabulous place to be. I mean, obviously the division's got a long storied his, history and a lot of people associated with the, with the Vietnam war and the things that happened there. Um, you know, 
over 40 Medal of Honor winners come out of that division, so that's that's pretty amazing. I'm sure uh, you you yeah. did the uh, the what's it called the the Gar the Great Aloha Run because I know in Iraq we did the Igar the Iraq Greater Aloha <laughs> Run when we were there. So uh, I actually did. I should have sent you a picture of that because I, I actually <laughs> have a picture of uh, the CG and I and some of the other leaders finishing up the, the Great Aloha Run. I did that a couple times while I was there. Uh, pretty pretty neat event. A lot of community support. I mean, I think the first year I ran that there was. Of course, it was prior to COVID, so there was about twenty three thousand folks yeah. you know, running in yeah. on a small island. You know, you know, you think about Hawaii; it's only one hundred twenty three miles, or at least you know, Oahu's only you know twenty one hundred twenty three miles around. You get twenty three thousand people run, take up a lot of road space. Well, you've had a long career, um, you know, and it's funny because I, I do. You typically start back at the beginning, but you know, it's one of those things where I'm always curious as you're still plugging away here, you know. Um, did you ever think that you'd be at it this long? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, if I go back to, you know, my little spot of the world, Mount Sterling, Illinois, and I, when I joined the Army, I thought to myself, um, well, first I thought, you know, I should be going to college and playing football, but I wasn't big enough, strong enough, or fast enough. No, so feeling. That's, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I, I said, you know, what, what can I do? I didn't really want to go to college at that point. So I said, hey, I'm going to. I'm going to join the army. It's a little bit of a family tradition there. And, and I had no idea that I was going to stay past the first couple of years, to be honest with you. And, and I think it, you know, one thing after another, you know, for me, it was falling in love with soldiers and the mission and, and the opportunity to, to make a difference and, and going back to the team thing, right. You know, being a, you know, a guy who played sports from the time I was, you know, five years old until I, until I graduated high school. This, this is really a big team. You know, there's lots of forwards, lots of centers, lots of guards, you know, and and there's a lot of people that bring a lot of great um, great ideas, capabilities, and a lot of passion to, to what we do in serving our nation. And and I, I sort of fell in love with that, and it doesn't really seem like 32 years. I can tell you a really interesting story about it, though, because at the 10-year mark, I was sitting in a little house at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was a staff sergeant, my wife and I. I've been blessed to be with her for 27 years. We're like, we have 10 more years, 20 years. You know, you, you get your retirement 20 yep. years. What are we going to do in 10 more years? Well, that was 22 years ago. So um, it goes by fast, but it's it, it has absolutely been, with the exception of my wife and my kids, the love of my life. And my wife would tell you I probably put just as much energy in this as I do anything else. So uh, yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I never thought it would last long, this long. I, I, I've... I've... I've, I've truly enjoyed all 23 years. I mean, it's not, not without ups and downs, to say the least, but I, I've always sort of believed that the Army put you where you're supposed to be for a variety of different reasons, whether it's to learn something, to become a better soldier, become a better leader, because you're needed in, in a certain capacity. Just if, if you really look back at the arc of any given career that, that stays for this long, um, you always ended up in the spot you were supposed to be at any given time for for any given reason. So uh, you talked about enlisting, you know, back in 1990, you know, we're, we're in a peacetime world at that point in time. It was, was the motivation outside of what you just said to me, was there anything about like uh, just trying to get to the next step and figure out wh- what you were going to do? Do you have a recruiting horror story to tell? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I do. So, so my recruiter, a guy named Staff Sergeant Paul, um, he was a really, he was a really good guy, you know, and I can remember him talking to my mom and sitting out in the little house we lived in. And my mom was like, you know, freaking out. Um, she, she's a great supporter of soldiers and all things, all things army now. But 
I think um, her experiences, you know, with my dad in Germany during during Vietnam and him going to Vietnam and coming back and, and so on and so forth, it was just kind of weird, right? But um, he he was a really good dude, and he and and he um, he was a real real straight shooter, and and uh, I transitioned to that to you know just a few years later, like six years later, I was a recruiter myself, and I thought about this guy, right? And I was like, he, he was a straight shooter to me, and I'm going to be a straight shooter to the kids that I'm trying to get to come in the Army and serve, you know, serve our country. And it was kind of the be-all-you-can-be uh, Army at that point. And, mm-hmm. and I, uh, ironically, I'm sitting in my office, and this guy calls me on the phone. And he says, hey, I'm Master Sergeant Paul, and I'm, I'm a recruiter trainer at the Columbia Recruiting Battalion. And I'm like, this can't be the same guy, right? Um, but – but he was. And so then he came, so he comes back, you know, five years, six years later after being my recruiter in, uh, in Illinois. And I'm, I'm a recruiter in North Carolina, but Columbia, South Carolina, you know, was where the recruiting battalion was. And he happened to work there as a recruiter trainer. He comes up there and he's like, Hey, let me, let me teach you the tricks of the trade. So, so that's kind of a weird recruiting story, but it's, it is an absolute true story. So he comes and he, and he helps me learn how to then, um, frankly, talk kids into coming in the army and why it's important. And, you know, when you're, you know, 20, you know, two or 23 year old staff sergeant, which I was at that point, you really only know so much about the army. You know, I'd been to Korea and I'd been at Fort Bragg and that's really what I knew about the army. Right. And it was very helpful to me. So I didn't really have a horror story with my recruiter, but I had a second meeting with my recruiter that was probably a bit of a horror story for him, but, but it was, it really was a lot of fun. It's kind of unique. I don't, Maybe other people have had that same experience, but but it was a good experience for me, and he helped me out being a recruiter and, and really kind of turned around my success as a recruiter during that time. Now, Desert Shield and Desert Storm kick off right around the time or slightly right after you, you get in. Um, was, was there any moment where you said, whoops, uh, might have made a bad decision here? Well, I don't know if it was, oops, I made a bad decision, but I do remember I was, uh, I was at Fort Benning, and, you know, it did kick off about that time. I got there on the, uh, the first of August. And I think really, if I recall, it was the second or third of August when, when all the hostilities with Kuwait and stuff started. And I remember, you know, we're in, in the reception battalion at that point, that's the place where you kind of do your in processing. And then, and then you move from there to your, to your basic training unit where they, you know, teach you how to shoot a rifle, get you fit, you know, teach you about the rank structure and all those kinds of things that you need to know about the army. And uh, they brought all of us. There must have been like a thousand of us at this point, right? August is a big time for us to bring folks in the army. You know, we bring a lot of people in during the summer time frame. You know, kids coming out of high school, coming out of college, so on and so forth. Just a big, big time to train people. There's like a thousand of us out there, and there, you know, some some lieutenant colonel who's in charge, right? I have no idea who that guy was. Now, you know, came out there and gave us all the big motivational speech. We're going to war, and you know, everybody from everybody's moving to the Middle East, and and um, I don't think I was thinking, wow, I made a bad decision. I think it was more like, wow, I'm excited. I get to do, um, I get to do what I, what I thought I was really joining the army to do, which was fight and win our nation's wars and be part of the team. You know, like I kind of talked about before. So uh, it was, it was fun, and and I I really remember that. And and it was, it didn't seem overwhelming to me, which I, maybe sounds a little weird. Maybe I'm a little off. No, I mean, hey, yeah. listen. My parents were all gung ho ROTC until nine eleven, and it was like, "Hey, you're gonna get out soon? 
I'm like, no one likes a quitter, Ma. No one likes a quitter. So, uh, you know, at that point, I was already pot committed. So it's neither here nor there, but I certainly understand it. Now, again, this is 1990. You know, I, I we have a 32 years to get there, so I don't want to fast forward too much. But, you know, between then and 9-11, like, what major significant things take place in your career that you can think of? Because obviously your career takes a different trajectory right after 9-11 and what goes on. But is, is there anything that stands out about that, that sort of 10-year period uh, other than your wife saying, hey, we only got 10 years left. And, of course, the world changed <laughs> yeah. on everybody. So, uh, you know, th- yeah. that, that alone probably was, was enough. Um, well, you know, we talked a bit about recruiting, and that was kind of in the middle of that too. But, but we, we did a lot of really hard training then. Um, and, and I think the one thing that comes to my mind a lot is, is we didn't maybe necessarily have the most technologically advanced equipment. We maybe didn't have the best, you know, the best, we didn't even wear body armor at that time, frankly, unless we were maybe doing a live fire or something like that. But what we did is we did a lot of hard training. Um, a lot of, a a lot of stuff that uh, was physically, uh, mentally demanding. Uh, but we, we came together as a team. And, and we, we had that sacrifice. You know, I'm, I remember going to the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and, and I think it was, it might have been 98 or 99. And it was, we, we jumped in, you know, out of airplanes like the 82nd Airborne Division does in the middle of the night. It was like 95 degrees at, at you know, 10 o'clock at night. And for the next 11 days, it never got, uh, during the daytime, it never got less than 100 degrees. It was grueling. It was, it was really, it was miserable. But, you know, that, that train event's about 17 days uh, in total. And we learned a lot of really valuable lessons uh, about ourselves and about our capability as a, as a light infantry platoon and company. And I'm sure the battalion brigade learned some lessons too, but I, I sure shit didn't know what they were at that point. But, uh, you know, I can I can remember having poison ivy that was the worst I've ever had in my life, and I, and it was, you know, you just kind of remember those things. But a lot of really good training, mm-hmm. a lot of really good good people. Um, I tell a story a lot about, you know, my first kind of squad, um, in uh, in the first brigade, of the eighty second. You know, nine guys in that squad. I, I'm still to this day in contact with, with, uh, with six of them. Uh, one of them is, is no longer with us. Uh, he's gone. Uh, he got in a bad, bad accident and lost his life. A couple of them just kind of lost contact with, can't reconnect with, but, but I think it just really shows the importance of the human aspect of being a soldier in the army and that connection that you get with people going through those really hard, um, really hard events in your life. And, and, uh, we we just we just had a lot of fun. We we learned a lot of really good lessons. We shot a lot of bullets. We got our first night vision devices together, you know, and the big Haiti 180 turnaround that was was getting ready to happen that didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a um, it was a very informative time from a, from a leadership perspective for me. And it was about being yourself, about setting a good example, about being a you know you know we say a lot of times about how the, the non commissioned officer core is the backbone of the army right. well we really we really train hard at the small unit level and nco's got the real i got a really good opportunity to lead and and make make tough decisions in, in a training environment that i think transitioned well when we when we got to counterinsurgency so yeah um a lot of fun you went through a lot of courses in that time pldc which no longer exists or at least it's been renamed uh you know you go to b knock and a knock and again also been renamed airborne air assault ranger school all that stuff um you know, I always ask this question to older folks 
or people who have been through it at a different time because obviously part of our job is to be flex, uh, flexible and adaptable to not only the needs of what's going on in the world around us and the, and the mission, but just for lack of a better way, way, way to phrase it, the, the people who are coming in now are not cut from the same cloth as you and I when we came in. We were, you know, I, I remember wall-to-wall counselings, like physical wall-to-wall counselings. We don't do that anymore. Good for, for obvious good reasons, but I'm just saying, like, you know, the, the, the corporate culture of the military has changed. So when you when you talk to brand-new graduates of Ranger School or WLC um, or whatever, you know, course that you had already went through, do, do you do you wonder or do, can you sort of quantify the changes and where they are? And I'm not saying it has to be better or worse, but it's different. And in, in wh- why, you know, have are we able to grade our differences now accordingly, I should say? That's a really, a really good question. And I, I think that a lot of senior leaders um, and even our, our middle management folks, you know, in the middle, think about that a lot. And, you know, I like a lot of people say, well, young men and young women are different now than, than maybe we were in the 90s or whatever the case may be. And I'm sure I'm sure they said the same thing about the kids from the 70s and the, and the 50s and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Right. And there's going to be natural progression. I mean, we, we are not. Uh, we're not the same. Um, I, I think we still have our same really solid values. You know, when we talk about the Army values and we talk about who we are and, and what we're what we're built to do, fight and win our nation's wars. Um, but when I talk to people, I, I tell them, you know, remember what you learned here, and and then with your experiences in your you know your day to day job and what we've taught you in this institutional environment. I don't care if it's Ranger School or or the advanced leader course or jump master school or anything, you know, the reason why you're here is to, is to refine a skill. Um, and, and that, that skill is going to help you uh, at some point, right? It, it may help you in a training environment. It may help you in a combat environment. Um, you may not be the absolute master of it right now, uh, but, and you're, but you're going to grow in time and you're going to learn to refine that. And so, don't don't think of this opportunity as as something that you know you're just putting in the back of your mind and you're never going to use again. You'd be surprised how many times that comes back uh, to the front part of your mind in your day to day duties and 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 you got to continue to learn and continue to grow and that's that's the hallmark of us as a professional army. We kind of hold each other accountable. So you know it, we we do that in a number of different ways through schools, as you as, as you talked about, through operational assignments, through deployments, through fireside chats, through all kinds of different things. It really is what makes us a, a really good professional army. But but I tell them, you know, this is a particular moment in time. Hopefully you learn something that's going to be valuable for you. Keep keep pushing. Keep learning. Um, we are a learning organization and and uh, don't don't, you know, don't forget what you learned here and use it to the best of your ability. And when you get back to your unit, there's probably somebody that's had a similar experience that you've had. If you happen to forget something, that that's fine. We, you know, we're not computers. We can't store unlimited amounts of information. You know, took your left and right and, and be, um, you know, have the personal courage to say, hey, look, I think I might have missed something there. Can you help me remember that? And I think it's pretty valuable. And, and those are all great events. They're all they're all informative events, right? Ranger school is informative. Jump master school is informative. You know, uh, warrior leaders course, basic non-commissioned officer course, all those. Sergeant major academy, all those things are informative experiences, and and they also you also meet some very pretty 
pretty uh, valuable people along the way and, and build some relationships too. So that's pretty valuable. Yeah. And again, I, I think we're always called to uh, evaluate, you know, uh, what we're teaching, how we're teaching it and why we're teaching it. And, 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 and moreover, you know, I, I've used this example. It's like, you know, my parents had to go, when they had to do a research paper, they had to go to a library to do it. You know, I, I was at the very beginning of the internet. Like, you know, I could go look on the internet and not have to go look for a book. And now kids and days could do a whole research paper on their phone sitting on the couch, right? Like, I mean, it's just, there, we shouldn't be in that mindset of, well, we did it this way before, so everybody should do it. No, we need to, there's a certain amount of adaptivity that, that we need to continue to grow with as things change around us because our environment is never static. And I think, you know, I, I just love to get people's perspective on it because it seems like things like Ranger School, right? It's tried, tested, and true. The nine weeks have been the nine weeks for a long time, and they've done it pretty much the same way for a really long time because the product that it produces is pretty darn good, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so from that standpoint, you know, I know there are tweaks. Obviously, there have been uh, along the way, but it's just one of those things where um, we, we are asked to do now more with less and more than ever before. So I'm always curious on where the perspective is from somebody who went through it, what, 30 years ago now, uh, to somebody who's going through it now. It, 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 there's a lot of the core components that are the same, but things obviously are different. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, we think about where we've gone for an army. We keep transforming every day, and our people are part of that. They, they you know, the way people think is a bit different. Uh, maybe the way people act is different. It's all informed by the environment and experiences around us, right? I mean, I, I, if, if you ask me, you know, would I be able to walk around and search the Internet on a device when I was a young private, I would probably think you were talking about Star Trek or something. But – but I think, you know, kids these days are, are um, you know, I can remember my dad always saying to me, you know, because I said so. That's true because I said so. Well, I say that to my 15-year-old today, and he immediately pulls out his, his iPhone and he says, oh, no, Dad, that's not, that's not right because Wikipedia says it's, it's this particular thing or another. So, so we do have that. But I think the, the young men and young women that join the Army today are pretty, they're pretty, they're really smart. And, and what they don't know, they, they know where to find it. And I think that's powerful because that, that goes back to problem solving, right? And we, you know, ultimately into the day, our army or our, our, our defense industry is about problem solving, right? Some, some adversary wants to do something against us. We want to be able to solve that problem and have an advantage against them. And if, if, if we're smart enough to figure that out on the internet, perfect. <laughs> if, if we have to get academia or industry or, or, or some scientist or some other person to help us figure that out because we just have been trained that way. That's good too. But, but it starts with that sort of intuition of um, let me make sure that, that uh, this is, this is accurate. And on the other thing, you know, people often talk about, you know, our, our young people are maybe not as, um, as physically fit or as mentally tough as, as maybe we were, we, we may just be patting ourselves on the back a little bit. Some of them, I, I believe, really are, right? Mm-hmm. The kids that play high school football are probably just as tough as the kids that played high school football in 1990. Um, you know, and, and they're probably likely faster and stronger because if we, you know, programs have invested in that and they believe in that, you know, better maybe than we did when I played football. Um, but I, I think... I think young men and young women are still very talented. I, I do think that there, there, there are problems with, you know, things like obesity and other kinds of things in the United States now that are, 
that are problematic from a military perspective, but, but I think they're smart and, and they, they have good intuitions and, and, you know, we, our, our problem really is, is about service above self and, and service to something um, without necessarily that tangible return that, that they may see in other, in other places. And I, I talked to them a lot about that too. And I, I just had an event earlier this morning where I was talking to some high school kids, like 35 of them. And, um, and I, I, I asked them, you know, what, what their name was and if anybody in their family had ever served and about half of them had had folks in their family to observe. But I told them, I said, look, service is not necessarily all about just being in the military. It could be, you know, as a firefighter, as a, as a police officer, as a teacher, as a politician, as a guidance counselor, as a, you know, the list goes on and on and on, you know, we, we need good welders in the United yeah, States. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, um, um, it doesn't have to start off with, you know, the United States army on it, on it, or the United States Navy or whatever the case may be. There are great ways to continue to serve our nation and be a valuable member of a, a really a larger team, a larger enterprise. So a lot, a lot of discussion about that in our, uh, across all the military services right now and in our Congress and other places, frankly. All right, let's fast forward, Sergeant Major. Where are you on 9-11? Um, you, you want to know exactly where I was on 9-11. When the, when the airplanes hit the towers, I was in the gym at Fort Polk, Louisiana with my wife, and we were working out. And we, wa- we walk in the gym, and there's – there was a couple little small gyms. Gyms weren't all that great back then either. They're much better now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we walk in the gym, we're back in the little gym area working out. And the, the young girl that worked that, uh, works up front walks back there and she says, did you see that airplanes hit the twin towers in New York? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, um, that's where I was at. I was in the gym working out and, uh, everybody has a tendency to remember where they were. Uh, at that particular moment and uh the tv in the gym wasn't on i happened to grab the remote real fast turn it on and i and i looked at it and i and i said to myself things are going to change and they did did you know at that point in time like we're going to war good you're like me see because i felt like i was the only one who was like that wasn't the first thought i mean i'm from new york i had family there like i had friends in lower manhattan you know my brother was working at the time so I was a little bit more frantic. I was trying to find everybody first. And then finally, you know, later on in the day, I called up my unit. I'm like, what are we doing? Where are we going? Like, what's, what's, what's happening kind of deal. So it was one of those deals where I was just, I was just a little bit delayed though. I feel like I'm the only person who didn't think, Hey, we're going to war immediately. I'm not so sure. I thought about it. Um, I mean, I guess I've been asked this question before and I'm not so sure I automatically said we were going to, we were going to war because at that particular point, I don't think anybody thought it was necessarily a terrorist attack. Maybe they thought it was just an absolute um, uncomprehendable mistake, yeah. accident. Yeah. Um, and then, but but I would say by 24 hours later, I think people really believed that that this was a a true um, a true problem that was going to require you know a military solution, and it took us a little while, but but we 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 did uh, did in fact start that campaign and and it was a very long campaign. I mean, it still really is going on. There are still people in Iraq and, and Syria and other places that are that are still working on that particular problem set. 
as an infantryman, were you, were you in that mindset like, let's go, this is what we train for, let's, I, I want to be the first one there kind of deal, or were you one of those guys who was sitting here just kind of waiting to, you know, sort of, sort of see the, 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 the steps unfold before you needed to go anywhere? Yeah, I think at that point I thought I had plenty of playoff games and training. I was ready for the for the Super Bowl, right? right. To use a sports analogy, mm-hmm. and you know you you want to see you know how how good am I at shoot, moving, and communicating? How good am I at, at um, you know putting my folks in a in a position where they have a, the advantage and so that we can win? You know, I don't think it had anybody anything to do really with you know wanting to have violence against one particular person or another, but we you know we trained for violence. Uh, controlled violence against our adversary and you know i was i was willing to do whatever my nation needed me to do um really probably from the day i joined the army but but i think that really galvanized everybody i mean people that were on already on active duty people that were sitting on their couch people that were you know maybe maybe for some reason or another were against military service you know people that were against you know war as a as an activity um, so to speak, and it just changed the it changed our nation in a in a really meaningful way very quickly uh, because it was an attack on our homeland and and that hadn't happened you know in anybody's uh, recent memory at that point. So um, so I was ready to do what I needed to do and had the opportunity to do that a few times. And, and uh, now, you uh, get to was, uh, you get to Afghanistan first, right? I did. I went okay. to Afghanistan in 2003 first. Okay. What um, unit were you with then? Well, that's a funny story. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I was actually in 1509th Airborne Infantry, the Op 4 at Fort Polk. Okay. Um, and they, you know, in, in the true way of, way of the Army, there was a tasker that came down and said, hey, we need some people to go to Afghanistan and go all around Afghanistan and figure out what's going on good and figure out what's not going on so well. Um, and it was called a, ca- a combined arms team. And, and I got selected to do that with about 13 other people. And we went to Afghanistan and we moved around all over the place for about three months. Uh, just looking at, you know, how we were, where we were having success, where we were having challenges. And what ended up coming to that was, is we wrote a handbook. Um, on on OI, uh, I guess it was what was it called? Um, the o- Operation to... Enduring Freedom yep. Handbook or something like that. I can't I can't recall exactly what it was, but mm-hmm. it really was a bunch of great lessons learned, at, you know. And and then we, you know, as an army, we, we were constantly trying to learn. I mean, that's hell, that's what we do here at Army Futures Command quite a bit. But it was, you know, I, it wasn't one particular unit. It was just a band of. 13 folks, like a little band of brothers. We kind of, we had a bunch of different skill sets. You know, there was a, there was a colonel and a, you know, you know, a few majors and, and there was two NCOs and I happened to be lucky enough to be one of the NCOs. And, and we looked at everything from how our squads fight to how our platoons and companies fight to, you know, staff integration. And, and we, we wrote some lessons learned and, and, uh, so that was my, were, my were first you, experience. Were you sort of bummed that you didn't get the combat experience that you had sort of lusted for? Um, maybe a little bit, but I got over that real fast because I was I was back on the train in, in a couple of months going to going to Iraq. So, but you know what? The the funny thing is, is the, the first time I ever really got the shit scared out of me was during that cat team. Um, we were we were on a we we're in a Humvee. We're we're riding along. Um, 
with some platoon. I don't even remember. I think it may, may have been 10th Mountain Division. I, I can't recall the, the unit. But um, they got a, you know, phone phone call and radio that said, hey, y'all need to uh, go set up this um, this traffic control point on this road. And so they went to set up this cap traffic control point on this road and we kind of herringboned off the road. Herringbone is like, you know, you kind of peel off the sides of the road. We're in this Humvee, right? Light-skinned Humvee at that point. We peel off the side of the road and kaboom, the front of the the front of the, the Humvee disappears because we ran into a mine of all things, right? I'm riding in the back of this thing. So so I'm like, okay, this this is kind of real. You know, this is not, you know, um, this is not fake in any kind of way. And it it was it was a sort of a wake up call for everybody in that particular platoon, but really also for me and the the couple people that were with them from the cat team and and um, you know it really was you know 2003 Afghanistan was still kind of the wild west I mean yeah, we were really yeah. trying to figure out figure out some things there and 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 that was my real first first experience with you know life threatening danger right quite frankly so I, wanna... um, I didn't I, I came away from it you know thinking to myself okay. All that, all that training doesn't always necessarily prepare you for that split second. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's a gap there. <laughs> there there's... Snaps you into reality really fast. Yeah, yeah, real, real gets real. Um, I want to ask you a question that I'm going to flip on you and ask you a little bit down the road. At least I, I assume I'm going to. But I assume when you went there, um, or even when you went to Iraq the first time. There might have still been some old Desert Storm guys hanging around in your unit. Maybe even a Vietnam guy or two, possibly. But you know, do, do you remember any of those guys imparting some wisdom on you about like what it was going to be like, what combat was like, like what to expect? And the only reason I'm asking this now is because I'm, I'm kind of curious the same wisdom you imparted on soldiers after a couple of iterations that you, you know, got to be the guy who was the salty veteran. Yeah, I mean, not not so much like right before we started in Iraq and Afghanistan, but my first first sergeant in the army when I was in Korea was a Vietnam veteran. And, and he used to talk to us about his experiences um, in Vietnam. And uh, we, didn't, I didn't, we didn't have any Vietnam vets running around, um, you know, kind of before, before we went into Iraq and Afghanistan in my particular unit. But we did, they did, uh, the leaders were pretty smart and they, they, they found some folks, you know, that, that had had combat experience and they, they brought them in to talk about, you know, kind of what to expect. And, you know, I was, you know, not super senior, but I was middle management at that point. You know, I'm a sergeant first class. I'm a platoon sergeant and, uh, you know, charge of 40, 40 men that are, that are ready to do uh, their nation's bidding. And, uh, you know, I think two things stuck out, stuck out in my mind. One, it kind of goes back to the experience of the, the mind taking the front of the front of the vehicle off. You're not going to know what to expect until you know it and, and it happens. Right. And then you're going to have to use your training and and what you've learned together as a team to react to that and hopefully you react in a positive way. And then the other thing that that uh, that stuck out in my mind was is is um, sometimes the enemy is really determined to fight and win, and sometimes the enemy is not. And it usually it usually becomes pretty um, it gets defined really fast when that when that action starts, when that event, when that firefight starts, you, you can almost immediately know, am I, 
is this going to be something that's going to last for a few few minutes or is this going to be something that might last for a few hours and uh and it was um i think it just gave you uh, something to think about going into that so you weren't it wasn't one of those things where you just snap and you know nobody really knows what to expect because my my whole platoon um at that point i think there was i had one squad leader that had been to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Everybody else had never been in combat. Yeah, interesting. Um, so when you get to Iraq uh, the first time, where are you going? Uh, what's your mission? Uh, so we went to Baghdad. Okay. Um, we um, again, I was in the same the same unit. Um, the op four, our company, Bravo Company, one five hundred ninth, got uh, got deployed forward to to Second Brigade Tenth Mountain to help fill out. They had some, they had a couple of companies that were doing something else somewhere, so they didn't have full battalions and they needed them. So, two companies from the battalion went forward. We we went with uh, Second Brigade of the Tenth Mountain Four Three One Polar Bears, um, and so we went went to Baghdad, uh, kind of um, started off in Biop, and then and then moved up to kind of north uh, northwest Baghdad. Um, to a, a, a smaller installation, and then and then we we really did a lot of um, what's the best word to describe it? We we did a lot of of patrolling for presence from a for a presence perspective, and then we also did a lot of work with trying to figure out the um, the IED network that was pretty prevalent in in northwest Iraq at that point. Did so, you get you get there in 04? Yeah, in 2004, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I got there in 05 for the first time. So, I, I mean, you, you talk about the – that was the buildup, right? Like, I mean, that was, you know, IEDs became weren't really a thing after the invasion. It took us a little while. And that, there was a dead period there. Like, at the end of 03 and 04, everything was – we were just sort of hanging around, waiting to see what was next. And all of a sudden, the enemy's like, ah, these guys are still here. Let's just F with them for a little bit. And lo and behold, I, IEDs started popping up everywhere. So um, – you're conducting these patrols. Uh, how much? How kinetic is is the contact that you're dealing with? How how has the operational tempo uh, there? And and was it what you expected when you get there? Well, it wasn't very kinetic from a direct fire perspective. I mean, we had a couple small engagements, but again, it goes back to what I was talking about. That they didn't really want to fight us in a direct fire fight. You know? sure. And I think that's one of the reasons why the IED became pretty prevalent. Right? You know, you could um, they could they could use it. Um, um, to pretty good effect, and and not have to not have to engage with a superior direct fire force. All right, you know you're talking about guys running around with with RPGs and and uh, AKs and you know fighting against you know us. We were just at that point just started getting up armored Humvees and and we were. I think that they probably knew we were better trained to to do fire maneuver than maybe maybe they were. But they they had the advantage of knowing the terrain and knowing the places to hide and the things to do. So. So the IED did become pretty prevalent. So, so a couple direct fire contacts, small things, nothing, nothing major, um, no major, you know, we didn't have any casualties from any of that stuff. And, and that was the first few months. And then the IEDs really started popping up and, and, uh, you know, my platoon had, had really had 13 different IED events during that really about a four month period of time. Um, some of them were, were, um, effective, you know, some damage to vehicles, some, some, you know, we had a couple of people get some scratches and bumps and bruises and stuff, but no, no major damage. So it was, it was just a weird, it was kind of a weird time. We were, as you described, there was a little bit of a lull there. And then, and then, you know, we, 
we started seeing all this IED activity and they just, they knew it was a really good way to, to punch us in the mouth and not have to get in a, a sustained, you know, direct fire contact with us. Now, some of that happened and everybody had different experiences, but that was right. just my experience during that, that particular time. You know, you, you talk about that incident in Afghanistan where you get the front of your Humvee blown off and you recognize real gets real. And then now you're dealing with the IEDs um, and real is sort of smacking you in the face again. Are, are you, do you ever take a moment to pause and be aware of the mortality of this whole thing? I mean, you know, do you feel lucky that nobody had gotten killed? I mean, you know, it, it's just one of those things where everybody experiences combat through their own prism, right? And, and their own uh, experience as far as of, of how they deal with it. And I'm just curious the mental state i mean it's very easy because we're trained to just turn it off move forward do the next thing right and and we deal with it as you said before you don't know the bad thing that's going to happen until it happens so you get yourself sort of in that tunnel vision but every now and then some of us step outside ourselves and start to realize like oh shit you know this this isn't a movie anymore it's not a video game like you know bad stuff is going to happen here sooner rather than later yeah, there's two things that come to my mind with regard to that, and, and I think about it even even today, right? It, and it, it's not it's not like a trigger event or a PTSD event or anything like that. I mean, but I do I do think about it and think about you know how things might be different based upon these two particular events. You know, one of them I'd share with you is is you know we kind of pulled into a patrol base. It's it's you know four vehicles. You know, I'm the patrol leader. I got a couple of my squad leaders and a couple of my squads. We pull into this little palm grove and and you know, really it's for, you know, we're on about, you know, our patrols were about 12 hours at that point. We literally wow. split up two and a half. We'd go 12 hours. We'd come back. We'd, we'd fuel the vehicles. We'd pass, pass the vehicles off to the other part, part of the platoon, and they'd go out for 12 hours. And it was, you know, sometimes seemed like Groundhog Day. But but the point I'm making is, is we, uh, so we stopped in this little prom grove to, you know, hell, I don't know, eat lunch or whatever, you know, have an MRE and get, get some water you know, do a map, you know, do a map check, send a report, whatever the case may be. Right. And so I'm, I get out of my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to my squad leaders. I walk back to my truck. And as I'm walking back to my truck, I'm like, I see this little, I see this wire on the ground. Right. And I'm like, what the hell is this? This doesn't, it just looks out of place. Right. So I reach down, I pick it up and I kind of pull on it. And then at that point I realize it's command wire. So so I'm like, holy shit, everybody get in the vehicles, get the vehicles moving. Turns out it's, you know, after we get the EOD folks in there, it's, it's uh, six 155s buried in that little palm grove. Um, and with a wash machine timer as the as the um, the detonating device that they, it hadn't rained. Here's the ironic thing. It hadn't rained in months. <laughs> they put it in a like a Walmart bag to, to keep it from getting wet, I guess. Well, the Walmart bag got stuck in between the two connectors on the washing machine device, and and that could have been a very, very, very bad day for for everybody in that patrol. Um, six one five fives. Um, we had vehicles that were sitting right on top of those things. It wouldn't have left much left. People. There wouldn't have been much left. Yeah, it would, it would have been. It'd have been terrible, right? Um, good news is, is nothing, nothing bad happened, right? But but I think I I think you'd be. Um, you'd be remiss to not think about what, what would have happened if that would have been different. If, if, if that, that little pay, that little plastic bag wouldn't have been in between those two particular, uh, the two connections on that washing machine timer, which was a widely used technique at that, at that point in Iraq. Did you guys talk about that event after? Did you guys like huddle up and talk about it? 
Oh yeah, yeah, we 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 absolutely did. And and I, you know, there's a, a couple of guys from that platoon. You know, obviously I'm still still close with, and and we still. I don't want to use the word joke about it, but we we um, you know, we share kind of our our thoughts about what was going on at that point because we were like, hey, let's get the hell out of here. We got to get we got to move fast, right? And I mean, when you're in, when you're in direct fire contact, you, you think about moving fast. I mean, you go back to like battle drills and thinking about how you're going to do things and um, and the, that natural reaction to do things. But but we were like we were literally standing there. Were people pulling security, obviously, but there were people that were like had their helmet off, drinking drinking some water, you know, eating a eating an MRE, and um, so we had to you know, reorganize really fast to move out of there. And so we share those things. And I, I think we get a laugh out of it sometimes, but not, not, a, not a laugh like, ha ha, that was funny, but man, ha, we were really lucky. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And that's, that's a good example of, of, uh, of that happening at that particular time. Did you tell your wife that um, story at the time? No, my wife yeah. never heard that story for a long time. <laughs> um, she, she probably, Oh man, I, I I tell you what, I think, I think the first time that I told that story where she probably had, um, she was listening, not that she doesn't listen to me because she does, but, um, my son, when he came back from Afghanistan, um, he, he had, he had a couple of his, his buddies that got killed in a, in an IED and, and it, you know, he had, he was having a bit of a rough time with it. Um, you know, it was one of the kids he went to school, like high school with. It's weird that two kids from the same high school go to the same unit and they're that close to each other. But, but so I told him the story and I was like, Hey, you know, I was really telling him the story to sort of make a connection to say, Hey, look, you know, bad things happen to good people. And, and, uh, you know, don't, don't take this. This wasn't something personally that you had, you had anything to do with. You know, I, I use that. So I'm probably maybe I used a different, I probably used other stories too, to kind of, kind of help him out with it. And, and she heard that and she was like, you know, and this is shit. This would have been 2018, maybe or 19, and that happened in 2004. 15 years, yeah. And she's like, "I never heard you tell this story." And I told her, "I said, why does? Why would I burden? Not burdens bad word. What? No, it's not. That, it's, I, not it's not a bad word because emotionally they don't know how to deal with it and handle it. We we're a little bit better yeah. equipped to do it. I think yeah. burden's fair." Yeah. And so she, I think she was a little angry with me, maybe a little, but at the same time, I think after, after the anger wore off, she was, she was like probably thankful that I didn't, didn't tell her that story and probably many others. There's, there's other stories that I haven't told her. And I, um, if she watches this, babe, I'm not trying to keep things from you. Um, <laughs> but, but why, why add another burden? Right. I mean, you, you talk about, um, burdens are, our families that that stay back here in the re, the relative safety of the United States, they they um, and I know you've had a lot of people come on and talk about this too, but but they go through a lot too. They don't know, they have no idea what's going on. You know, the service members keep a lot of stuff from them for good reason. Yep. And and then you know when bad things do happen, um, they they you know they deal with it sometimes masterfully, masterfully. And sometimes, you know, not so well, um, you know, I shouldn't say especially, but younger spouses that that haven't had, you know, multiple swings at this thing, um, you know, sometimes 
uh, sometimes have uh, have a harder time with it. And those those people like you know my wife and them that, that have to to try to figure out a way to to to, to help them through that. That's a pretty um, it's it's a hard thing to have to go through and deal with. And they they deal with a lot of pretty pretty uh, pretty hard stuff. And that's why they're fr- really flipping amazing people. Um, they they stick with us. You know, she's been with me for 27 years. She's been through all those deployments and and candidly when my son was in afghanistan it was hard that was harder on her than me being in afghanistan multiple times yeah. iraq multiple times because she i think she kind of she had the experiences for me and she didn't want to have that experience with our with our son thank god everything worked out he's back and well, you know, while you're on the subject how did you handle his deployment it's a game changer when it's your kid it's totally different like you, yeah. I was fortunate enough to deploy both times, not married, no kids. So I, I, I mean, my whole goal was just keep my ass alive. And that was it. Right. Like I didn't have to worry about yeah. anything. I never understood how, now that I'm a father, I, you know, I never understood how people could walk away from their kids. Like I get it. Like I understand the bell rings. We answer, right? Like I'm not, but just, you know, I haven't been able to mentally get myself in a place where it's like, okay, I'm leaving. See you guys later. And now on the flip side, imagine my kid going away for nine months to a year at a time. It's like, that's that's so how did you handle it i was a brigade sergeant major at that time i was busy (laughs) (laughs) no i'm joking um it uh i I think you know from an expectation perspective i was i don't want to use the word worried but i was probably more aware than you know the average person who hadn't maybe had those same experiences um, and I, I talked to him and I said, hey, look, you know, you do your job, your duty. Um, and and you do it to the best of your ability. You take care of the people around you. You know, you know what's right and what's wrong. And and you're you're well trained. You're in a good unit. Um, as a matter of fact, he was in the exact same company that I served in um, my first my first time in the 82nd Airborne Division. Wow. I said, I have confidence in those those non-commissioned officers and those officers that they're going to leave you well. Yeah, but how do, how, do you, how do you get out of your head? Because you know this now. And I've said this a million times on the show. The randomness of combat doesn't discriminate. There are people who yeah. have done everything right and ended up yeah. dead. There are people who have done everything wrong and walked out alive. There is no way to control the outcome. And you know this. So you can say all these things to your son but in the back of your head, how is that mental, like, you know, bomb, time bomb, not ticking, going, I can say it doesn't matter. It doesn't, like, yeah. I, I, there's literally no control to certain things that go on. Yeah. Um, I think I probably tried, like you said, I probably tried to put it in the back of my mind and said, this is not something I'm going to worry about because I don't, go goes back to what you said, I don't really have any control, right? You can do everything right and something bad can happen. You can do everything wrong and something good can happen. Um, and I, I'd be a liar if I wasn't concerned. Uh, you know, he was in Helmand province. It was a bad place at that time. Uh, and, and I, uh, I worried. Um, but I, I also knew that, that he was a, he's a good, strong kid and, you know, he's in a good unit and, um, he made the decision to serve his nation in a time of war. And I was very proud of that. Still very proud of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, he did a good job and his, his unit did a good job and it all worked out. But like I said, my wife, 
she 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 uh she probably well, not probably she had a harder time with it um than than I I think than she did with me. Now maybe not my first my first rodeo, you know, my first deployment. She was probably pretty hard on her, but but she I guess maybe become a little bit more accustomed to it. But I, I did worry about about my my son, and uh, shoot, I I'm a father. I worry about him today. He's 25. He's not in the army anymore. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. got he's married. He's got two. We have two grandkids. Um, you know, one's two and one's six months old. You know, I worry about can he is he going to be a good dad? Is he going to do the right yeah. things there too? So, um, but I think I, I he, think the advice you gave him was was the best because look, I'll share something. You know, and I've told this story before too. There were times when I was you know I was fortunate or unfortunate on my deployments. You know, I was outside the wire four or five days a week. I might have logged about five to six thousand miles on the roads of Baghdad, running convoys uh, at the time that I was there in 05 into 06. So. Uh, you, you get the operational tempo there and what it was like, but there were days I'd wake up and I would just be scared shitless about today's the day. Like, how, how can we, how can we go out there again and nothing bad happened? I would be so overcome and so overwhelmed um, with fear and not wanting anybody around me to see it. I would sneak behind a building and I would just say a small prayer. And, it, and one of the things I would say was just let me do it right. Let me do what I'm trained to do. Like that's that's yeah. at least there's some peace in that. And I think that's that's the best piece of advice you you probably gave is just do what you're trained to do. Take care of your people in front of you. Those are the things that I said to myself and prayed that I would do in those moments when bad things was happening. And that's really ultimately what you can control, right? You know, to follow through on the training that you've learned, put others before yourself and let the chips fall where they may. And if today's your last day, God willing, take care of my family. You know, that, like that's, that's all you can say in those moments. Yeah. And I, and I absolutely said all those things to him. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and I've, I honestly, I think I've said that to thousands of soldiers, sure. right? Yeah. That, I've, that I've encountered and and had the opportunity to to lead um, in combat and not, and not in combat, right? Do do what's right. Um, do it to the best of your ability. Lead yourself in a meaningful way. Uh, be part of a team. Know that 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 what you do is important, and know that if something bad happens, your nation. And the the leaders, me included, will do everything we can to be right by you and right by your commitment to 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 service. And and that's uh, you know, it's easy. I've said it hundreds of times. It's easy to say. Um, it's it's harder to do, and it is powerful when demonstrated appropriately. <laughs> and and you know, we have a lot of really really good leaders. Um, in our Department of Defense and in our nation that do it really well. Um, we have some that are that are challenged by it because you can't do everything great. Not everybody's going to do everything great. Um, and I I um, I'm very respectful of that. And and I know, you know, I've done some really good things. And I've done some really not so good things, not like an illegal perspective, but handled situations, you know, better in some in some cases and, and not as well as I would have sure. liked to. Right. The whole self-evaluation thing happens to me every day. You can't do this Reprising for 32 again. years and do everything right. It's not possible. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but but the bottom line is, is you know, my message to people is, is and, and people that are thinking about serving their nation is, is that it it really is about about service above self. There are really good things about serving your nation. There are really good skills that are that come from this. We are a leadership factory. That is what the Army is. I believe that wholeheartedly. From the time you come in, we say, hey, you got to lead yourself, right? Leading yourself is showing up on time in the right uniform 
physically, mentally prepared to, to, to do what you have to do and doing the very best that you can for, um, for your unit and the people around you. And, and all that stuff will take care of itself because ultimately we're a people business and we're a, we build leaders that uh, leaders of character, um, leaders that are disciplined, that are fit and that are highly trained and, and that are backed up by the constitution of the United States. And it's, it's a pretty powerful thing. And when you get a, when you get people to buy into that, oh my gosh, look out. We can, we can accomplish anything, anywhere, anytime. And we do. And we have done that for 247 years as an army anyway. Uh, do you manage to escape all of your deployments without losing anybody? Yes. As a matter of fact, I, I, wow. I, I have. Um, and I'm very thankful for, um, uh, well, thankful to God. I'm thankful to the men and women that were there with me to, um, you know, we had, again, we had some people get bumps and bruises, um, had said, had, had an amputee, had, um, you know, had some, some other bad shit that happened, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did, um, luckily not have to not now I, that's my, when I say my unit, I, um, you know, in the battalion, in the brigade, we, we had, you know, multiple people get, um, lose their, lose their life and service to their nation. Very, very thankful to them for that. Um, how did that hit you personally? Um, you know, I, I think, I just think it really reinforced the, the, the power of, of people doing this on behalf of their, their nation and people and their way of life. Right. This, this whole idea of the United States and the constitution and, and, and all of that came because people were willing to, to you know, ultimately put um, probably the hardest, the hardest thing to give is your life. <laughs> I mean, how, how much harder can it be than that? And, right. and they were willing to do that. Um, and, they, and they probably got up that morning. Maybe they thought it was today was the day, like you said, or maybe they thought there's no way today is the day. Right. And, and it, maybe it ended up being that day. And, and um, you know, I have been, you know, I've been, you know, in close proximity to that, to people losing their life. They weren't in my unit. Um, but, but, you know, it, uh, it is, it leaves a, a pretty, um, pretty painful, yet positive reinforcement of, you know, why we are here and why we serve. Yeah, and, and, you know, and I asked the question just because more than anything, it, it's kind of in your personal story sort of, you know, twofold here. I mean, you get to a point where you hit that 20-year mark, right? Uh, you've lived through this stuff. You've been fortunate enough to escape relatively physically in one piece and, and mentally in one piece. And there are other people who didn't get that same luxury. And, and so, you know, it's it's twofold when I ask you know, how are you, like, how are you responding? Are you aware of what you've been through at the time? Um, and then two, you know, was there a part of you that thought maybe it was time to hang it up and say, look, I've got my 20. I've done what I needed to do. I've done more than my fair share as far as serving my country. Maybe it's time to go in a different direction. Yeah. I've thought that many times, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but I, I go back to, you know, I, I, 
I, I love serving my country. I love the people that, that are in, that are in the army and in really in the, the joint service. They're amazing people. Um, you know, and if, if I'm not willing to continue to put my, um, my time and my energy and, you know, if it comes to my, my well-being on the line for, for those young men and women and, and older men and women that are still serving, um, you know, I, um, I find some, I find some real power in that for me personally. And, and I'm, you know, I, I think about it all the time. My, my wife and I have this conversation, you know, a lot. I mean, and even more now, right? Well, 32 years. I mean, it, and she's like, well, and some, in some things, you know, and I, I love her for this. She's, she, she says that, you know, when is, when, when do you think enough is going to be enough? And, um, I told her I'll know. And right now I don't, I don't know that. Um, I know that I got more to give. Uh, and I know that my experiences can be powerful for, for the army and, and for, um, my unit. And I'm happy to share all those. I'm happy to give that. And I, I love, I mean, I, I really do love being around soldiers and there's, there's nothing like being around a bunch of, a bunch of young soldiers that are passionate about getting something done. Right. And I, when I say getting something done, I, I mean like lining the vehicles up in the motor pool, you know, to to um, changing out a tank's engine, to you know doing a line fire, to deploying to fight and win our nation's war. They they are amazing people, and that if you can't get motivated by that every day, um, might want to you know take you stick yourself in a pen or something yep. to see if you're still alive. So it's, it's pretty powerful and I, I do love it. And, and I also know that like it's fleeting, right? <laughs> there's, there's not, there's, um, there may be not, may not be that much left for, for me, but I'm going to give everything I got right now until, until I, that light does come on and I say it's time to go or the army does, um, says, Hey man, you're, you're too old. You can't continue to serve. You can't do enough pushups in the morning anymore. So, so it's, uh, it's pretty that, that it's a pretty powerful motivator too to 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 continue to do it as as positively and as as skillfully as possible. And you know if I can if I can touch one one young soldier each day, one person out on the street each day, and and they look at you know what we've done together in the army over 32 years as a positive thing. Yeah, that's that's pretty powerful. It's the part I hate the most about being an 05 and an 06. Nobody wants to be your friend anymore. No soldiers don't want to be around. I'll never forget the first time I took battalion command and we had lunch and uh, I, I came late to it and I went and, and grabbed my food and I went to sit down and nobody wanted to sit next to me. I'm like, damn, well, that's like cockroaches when the lights came on. Nobody wants to hang out with the old man anymore. And you get stuck. You just get so far removed from soldiers. And, and to your point, it's right. Like that's, you know, if, if you like leading, you got to be with Joe on the ground. There's, there's, there's just no other way to do it, uh, and, and you don't get that same experience anywhere else. I, I do want to ask you real quick uh, about your your personal experience, and, and you know, I, I obviously, whatever you're comfortable sharing, but with all that you went through, you know, I, I ask this question a lot of people. Do you wish that somebody had told you, hey, take a break, like take a day off, give yourself some time to decompress from everything you just went through, uh, not that necessarily any of us would have listened, right? Because I wouldn't have listened, right? There's no way I would have sent my crew back out there without me, period. That wasn't going to happen. But there there was a time and a place where someone could have said, 
Hey, Mark, you know, why don't you go just talk a little bit about what, what we just went through the other day. Um, and, and do you think that, that if you would have done that along the way, maybe things might have turned out different for you mentally or you might have been in a different space or even some of your soldiers might have benefited from that because we're so conditioned to accomplish a mission and do what's next. And I think that's a good thing. I, I don't want us to lose that. But there's got to be a balance somewhere, especially now knowing what we know about mental health, PTSD, TBI, and everything else, you know, that maybe after my TBI, I wouldn't have just, you know, went to the gym the next day and acted like everything was normal. If someone would have said, you know, let's, let's sit you down for two or three days and evaluate you here and just make sure your eyes aren't going to roll in the back of your head the wrong way. So where, where are you in all this? And, 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 you know, again, I understand you're in a different position right now because you're still leading troops and, and you know, um, you know, your personal feelings may not align with what, you know, uh, we feel as a military, but I'm sure there's a there's an answer somewhere there, somewhere there in between. Yeah, so the easy answer is absolutely. I wish somebody would have, would have you know talked to me. Um, and I, I think we we um, culturally, you know, we have a little bravado that sometimes it gets in the way of us, um, you know, maybe sharing our feelings about things. Uh, and and maybe some of that is good, you know. There, maybe there are some things that you should you should deal with by yourself. Um, but what I've found is is that that um, the the emotional release of talking to somebody about something is can be pretty powerful for you. Um, you know, I've you know you talk about TBI, you talk about PTSD, you talk these these different things that that have happened to some of us. Um, you know. You, you can maybe talk to somebody that's close to you and, and, and maybe they can um, relate to it a little bit. Um, but maybe they don't have the, really the professional training to, to, to talk to you about it in a more, um, maybe I don't want to use the word meaningful way, but a more structured way. Um, I just think that, that talking to people is a good thing, right? And, and when I say talking to people, I mean talking to the people that you went through that with because they can relate to you and talking to people that, uh, that are tra- trained professionally to, to, to deal with some of these things is good. Um, you know, talking to people that you trust that maybe have no real relationship to it other than the fact that they're, they're meaningful people in your life is, is good. You know, I, I be honest with you, some of the things we talked about today, I've talked about in a while. So so that I think that the, maybe that as I reflect on that after, you know, this evening when I go home, I'm sure my wife will ask me how it went. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe maybe we'll talk about something we haven't talked about in a while with regard to what we've talked about today. And that that could be helpful to me personally. So I'm I'm uh, I'm very aware of the the power in, in having those types of communications with each other. Um, traumatic stress is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it happens to different people in different ways. Uh, and, you know, we, we, um, we hope that people, you know, are willing to come forward and, and say, Hey, I need, I need some help. And, and that is very, you know, that is a, that is them demonstrating strength, not weakness. Yes, and frankly, I, 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 that's I, leading. 
That's leading themselves and saying, hey, I, I, I'm dealing with something right now, and, and I, need, I need somebody to help me with that. I need, I need my, 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 the people that I love to help me with that. I need the people that are professionally trained to help me with that. I need the people that I trust to help me with that. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to be vulnerable um, it, to, to get healthy. And, and I think that's very powerful. I mean, I agree. Look, and, you know, I've shared part of my personal story. I mean, it took me 15 years to literally sit down with somebody finally and have the conversation. But And some of it was twofold. One, obviously, you know, we learn to compartmentalize well in the military, right? We're, we're trained. Everything is stacked neatly where it's supposed to be, and we can leave it there and, and move on. But, you know, the other part of it, too, is that I, I was petrified about losing my career. I mean, that's, that's, that was, you know, the other part about it, that if I if I start – talking about this stuff that I'm going to end up from this trajectory to one that is moving in a different direction. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to give it up. Um, you know, and, and for me personally, you know, push comes to shove where it's just like, I, I got to, it's all the, the, the house of cards is all going to come crumbling down if I don't do something. Right. So, um, you know, it, it became, you know, a, a, a point of critical mass for me personally, but you know, do we do a good enough job in the military? Um, not only in your experience, but what you've seen, you know, beyond the, the, your own leadership experience, but do, do we do a good enough job at making soldiers feel comfortable that their career won't come to an end if they want to talk about these things? Well, I think, um, I, I think we do all we can do, but we can continue to do more. Right. We have to, you know, the, the folks that are, that are leading our army right now have got to, to, um, place emphasis on it. I've got to talk about it, and we've got to we've got to deputize you know people um, all across um, the leadership of our army to 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 tell their stories and to be candid with people. And if they've if they've struggled with things, uh, they they their their stories telling their stories can be powerful to somebody else that then allows them to say, okay, I can tell my story. Um, I can ask for 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 help. Um, are we doing um, everything right? You know, I would say everybody's going to have to make that determination themselves. Um, I've I've seen a significant increase in in you know the ability for us to help people with with everything from um, you know every every kind of experience that you can imagine uh, in in behavioral health, post traumatic stress disorder in other ways. Um, and, and, uh, you know, my, my message to everybody would be is, is the, to, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help. Nobody's going to judge you. There, there are, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but, but, you know, if somebody, if somebody said they were having some sort of, um, reaction, negative or positive reaction to some event in their life, nobody, I'm convinced that nobody in the army, no leader in the army would say, okay, you're, you're no, you're no longer a value member of our team. Um, and be, I just, I just don't think they would do that. Um, sure. and you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would, I would stop anything and everything that I'm doing to help, to help somebody. If, if they said, Hey, I'm having a problem right now. I don't care. There's nothing more important than people. We are a people business. We win with people, not with technology. We win with the people in our formations that, that do the fighting, and and um, and we have to continue to invest in them. You know, from 
from the moment they walk in a recruiting station till the moment they retire to the moment they become a soldier for life to the moment um, they they go in a veteran they go in a veterans facility because you know they're in the twilight they're in the mature part of their life um, and it's it is vitally important for us to to do that as a nation and as a people and it's it's hard work and if it was if it was easy it would we would snap our fingers and we would fix the problem but when it's when it's people it's hard and we're pat we're all passionate about it all the senior leaders in the army are passionate about this and and i'm i'm passionate about it and if there's some soldier out there or there's somebody out there some veteran out there that's listening to this they can they can find me and if if i if i'm the person that's going to be the person that's going to help them i feel good about that and I'm, I'm willing to do that and and uh i tell people all the time you can um, I'm not a hard person to find, uh, and you know, just look me up. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever good idea, whatever bad idea, whatever problem you have, whatever, whatever solution you have to anything that's going on in our army or in our community or in our um, our sphere of influence, um, I'm happy to help take that on. Um, and I may not be able to do it myself, and, and that's why there's so many wonderful people in the army that are willing to, to pitch in and and give a hand, right? And and folks like you, right, that are telling great stories um, each and every day about about the the great service of of people that are, you know, um, national treasures. One more of uh, my my tough questions, and then we'll we'll move on to some some other stuff. But you know, along those same lines with with military suicide and veteran suicide, you know, I mean, all this stuff touches each other. And I look, I and I fully understand, um, and and I don't say this as a slight in any way. It's hard to separate Brian from Command Sergeant Major Hester, right? Like, you know, but, you know, in in private moments, the same way it's hard for me to separate Mark from Colonel, you know, Army National Guard guy, um, because I believe in our organization. I believe in what we do. I don't think we, we, we ever do anything with malintent. All of our intentions are, are good and honorable and noble, and we want uh, the best for everybody. But that doesn't mean we're, we're going to be 100% effective, and we have to own that. Uh, we have to own accountability for it. I don't think we, we gain anything by going, well, it wasn't our fault. Nope, can't, you know, washing our hands of it, is, it doesn't, doesn't solve anything either. So I understand the dichotomy that, that, that you're in as well as I am. But, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a lame question to ask, can we do better? Yes, we can do better when it comes to veteran suicide. But, you know, let's phrase it this way. If someone comes to you, says either I feel like I'm having these thoughts or I know somebody who is you know does does the sergeant major mask come off and Brian step forward or is it one of these things where we sort of have a system in place that we think works I mean how do you personally handle that sort of thing well I mean I I think that um I think the Brian person comes out more than the sergeant major right um because it's a it's a human thing it's not a rank thing <laughs> um and and i think that that's you know some people do that better than others right so but for me when somebody comes to me with a personal problem um you know i i wear this uniform every day all right and i'm very proud of it um but what i'm more proud of is is you know being a dad and, you know, being a being a husband, uh, being trustworthy. And and I, I think that that um, if somebody comes to me with a with the problem like we're talking about right now, 
they're going to get the the real me. Um, it's going to be informed by some of my experiences in this uniform, no doubt. Sure, but yeah. but they are going to get the real me, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna give it to them. Um, you know, as as real and as effective and as as authentic as I can be. And and I also know that that I don't have all the answers. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna then then the the army part because the sergeant major part of okay I'm gonna can take control of this situation. I'm gonna get the right expert and I'm gonna get the right people involved. Right. So so I think first you're gonna get that hey this is me this is you we got this, we'll get through this together. Um, I understand. I don't want you to think when I say I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm making light of it, but, but we're gonna get the right people involved. Um, and it's gonna, it's gonna start with me and you and this situation. And, and then we're gonna, um, we're gonna try to find a solution that makes this, um, make this better for you and better for me because now I own this thing, right? I'm, I'm the guy you can't, you can't bring something to me like that right. and then say, okay, well, Hey, okay. Yeah, I got it. Let's go find Sergeant so-and-so and Lieutenant so-and-so and they'll handle your problem. No, it don't work that way. When you bring these kinds of problems to, to a leader, I don't care what level they're at. They own that problem now. And we want them to follow through with that problem. So, so they're going to get Brian first. Um, and then, and then once we, we gain, um, control or at least as much control of the situation as we can, um, then we'll, we'll start to use the experiences and the access and the, 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 um, the network associated with the office of, um, the, the SAR major, not, not as much as the Sergeant major themselves. Right. You know, one of the things that I always, when it comes to that, what I always hold to more than anything is, uh, and, and maybe just because I'm old, um, but, you know, I, we, we got to get less technology dependent and more people dependent. Um, you know, I, I try to tell everybody on my staff all the time, we need to get something done. If you can physically go talk to the person, do it. You, be, you, you broker better deals face-to-face than you do over email or text. Right. Yeah. That connectivity yeah. is what is what we're la- And it's the same thing when you're talking to your soldiers and you're checking in on call them into your office. How are you doing? Sit them down face to face. What's going on? What can I help you with? It's that that whole thing has got to come back. I mean, and, and you can lead through email to a certain extent. You can lead through a phone, but there's nothing like the, your buddy can't sit next to a phone in a foxhole and go, he's got my back. You know, it doesn't work that way. You got to be there with them, and and that really is ultimately something that I, I try to preach throughout my staff and, and and to all my Joes that just simply you know talk to people face to face, man. Get off the phone, just go reach out and shake a hand, and and, and the world gets a little bit different. Um, speaking of shaking hands, uh, you know you, you finish all these deployments and everything, uh, and clearly you're at a point here where, like you said, you could get out, you want to continue to serve, but you keep getting assigned to these bigger and better sort of units and jobs and everything else. Like, I, I mean, is, is there a point where you are starting to realize for lack of a better term, your, your stars on the rise and that there is a lot more ahead of you going forward, or are you just sort of like, you know, they asked me to go here. So I went here. I didn't think about what was next kind of deal. I think it's more of what, what you ended it with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not, there's no illusion. People, you know, people in the army know who I am. Right. And, and, and maybe even outside the army, some people know who I am. Right. But a few people from Mount Sterling, Illinois know who I am. 
Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's I, with the whole star on the rise thing. I think that's um, for me personally, that's kind of hard. I'm, I, I don't, I don't try to, you know, I look at myself in the mirror only to assess, am I doing a good job? Sure. Not, not to, not to assess. Are you, are you as important as you think you are? Well, okay. So um, I, I, maybe I phrase it. I guess what I'm but, saying here is that like, we're all compelled at a certain point in our career to, to evaluate what's next for us and where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. So, yeah. you know, I mean, look, uh, you know, would I love to pin on a star? Sure. If the opportunity was there, I have to at sure. least do some research to figure out what roads I could take to get there. If that opportunity presents itself, I can't just go, well, if somebody wants me, they'll come call me. No, it doesn't work. That, especially when you get to the senior level, it doesn't work that way. There's a certain amount sure. of, for lack of a better term, and this is definitely lack of a politicking, or at least, you know, uh, but, you know, making known what you would like to do next in your career. And so when I say your star is on the rise, I mean, obviously, the positions are, they don't give them to everybody. You know, there's a small list of people who get selected for X, Y, and Z to be in the final three, and then they pick somebody. So that's what I meant when I said that. Not that necessarily you were like, hey, look at me. I'm Brian Hester, and the world loves me. No, I, it, that's not what yeah. I meant at all, so I apologize. No, no, that's great, Mark. I mean, so I, I um. I think when I took this job a year ago, I, I thought that this was going to be my last assignment in the army. I don't know if it will be. Um, I'm again, I'm happy to continue to serve. Um, but I, I also start to think about, you know, when in those moments when I have time to myself, which are few and far between, I start to think about, you know, what am I going to do next? You know, if, you know, because eventually you, you do have to retire from the army, Brian Hester. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, I, th- I think to myself, you know, what can I do that's going to be meaningful to me and to my family and to, to my nation and, and to the people I love and I like to be around? Um, and, you know, I have some ideas, you know, I'd like to I'd like to figure out ways to, to continue to give back to veterans, um, especially in you know kind of where I grew up. Um, there's not a lot of, of um, you know, people from that area that do join the military, but, but there, there's a, you know, there's a few, they, they, you know, there's a few people from the central Illinois or the Midwest area that, that are out there. And clearly there's, there's a lot of old, old time veterans that, that I'm very um, passionate about. So um, I talked to a few people about different things as to, you know, how, how can I get involved in that in a meaningful way? And um, I'm also a, pretty avid outdoors guy so i got some i got some thoughts about you know maybe maybe um you know maybe trying to make a living doing some kind of outdoor stuff i I don't know i mean we'll we'll see what happens but it's um i think for for a lot of us that are in in the service right it's especially when you've been doing it for a while it's almost hard to think about doing something else (laughs) <laughs> I mean, look, you spent more of your life in uniform than out. Yeah, I mean, twice as much. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, but there, there's some good things, you know, my, me and my brothers own a couple, couple pieces of property back in Illinois and, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll end up back there. My parents are still there. Um, you know, I, I also, I also have these grandkids that are, that are uh, a draw for, for us, you know, and they're in North Carolina, so maybe 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 that'll be uh, be home, and we'll find some meaningful meaningful things to do, meaningful work to do there. Just don't stay in Fayetteville um, again. Just don't do that to yourself. 
that uh, probably, I mean, well, you know what, though? My first experience in Fayetteville in 1990 was significantly different than my last experience when I was there as a brigade sergeant major. Well, it's, it's a much better point. Yeah. Um, but uh, something to give back to to people and and to, you know, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll go be a Cub Scout master or something like that, you know? I mean, that sounds, you know, I, you know, I probably could do a decent job of that. I could organize 10 or 12 small kids to go on a camp. Can you tie trip. a knot, though? That's um, the real question. I mean, you might be able to tie a Swiss seat for yourself, but can you tie any other yeah, knots? That's about it. like that, right? So, so it's, um, I, I, I just say the sky's the limit, right? Right. Um, only as much as you want to do or mm-hmm. don't want to do, right? And I, I have a lot of my, my partners and friends that are, that have retired now and, most of them wish they were still on active duty. <laughs> Not all of them. Some of them are doing great things. Some of them are making millions of dollars doing stuff. Some of them are, you know, living on their retirement, living their best life, right? Good. For me, I think it's somewhere closer toward living your best life. How, do I, how can I spend some time with my grandkids, spend some time with my wife, my 15-year-old, and then find something other else meaningful to do to occupy my time? Um, and And so I'm – I'm looking forward to that. I hope it's not tomorrow, mm-hmm. but but I do think it's going to be. I do think it's going to be a lot of fun when that time comes. I want to I want to ask you a question about your current assignment because you said something before that I'm like, oh, he might regret saying that when I ask him this question. Um, you said we we win by people, not by technology, which is interesting <laughs> given your assignment. Because did you ever think that the uh, infantry trigger pulling, airplane jumping, ranger tab wearing uh, you know, door kicking infantry guy was going to be hanging around the nerds who figured out exactly how to make our phone geosync with a tank, <laughs> a Humvee, uh, an AH-64, all at the same time. Because that's what Futures Command is, right? It's like all the toys that we don't know we need, trying to figure out how we need them. So all you nerds got together and said, let's come up with something that we might be able to use 10 years down the road in combat. And these are the guys you're in charge of now. Yeah, you know, you know why? Because we have to have the advantage and we have to win. It goes back to that door kicking, rifle shooting, airplane jumping, you know, experience, right? So how do you bring that to to technology? How do you bring that to the integration of the human and the machine in the future, right? And then in the in in the um, in the space where people are not going to be able to hide anymore, right? Camouflage on your face and and a fighting position isn't necessarily going to work in the future. And so all that, um, that, that science, that technology, that engineering, that development, um, that has to be, um, we have to have, uh, the, you know, chief reality officer to, to say, Hey, can that, can that work for soldiers? Right. Can that work in, um, the environment that we think that we're going to put it in against our near peer threats, um, against, you know, you know, counterinsurgency and across the, the, the gamut. Right. So the answer to the question is no, I never thought that I would do that. Um, and, and I, I, I also never thought I'd be a Sergeant major, but, but um, so, so it's, it's the intersect, you know, we bring these experiences, you know, lot, lots of experiences in 32 years, but then we bring, you know, colonels and other sergeants, majors, and more importantly, we bring young soldiers. You know, we got a lot, we bring specialists and lieutenants and captains and sergeants 
into these experiments. And we say, hey, look, does this is this going to work? Does the button need to be on the left? Um, does, is there too much, you know, um, input coming in? Can the human brain take all that? Can we can we categorize it in a meaningful way to apply the resources the way we want to for the for the result that we're looking for? Um, so, you know, I. I look at myself as can I be the can I be the chief not the chief technology technology officer not the chief financial officer not to be the chief science scientist the chief engineer you know chief reality officers maybe I should hang that on my door and and say hey you know of all the technology that we're building um, is it is are we going to be able to use it in the way that it's that it's uh, designed to do which is fight and win and give us advantage. The answer to that question is yes. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Has to be informed by war fighting, because I believe uh, that that we are still going to have young men and women that are going to be at the edge that are going to have to go the last hundred meters to make sure that we own that piece of terrain. And if we can give them a better piece of kit to do that, um, if we can get them a be- give them a better way to communicate, um, we can give them a better way to to see the battlefield. If we can shoot further than our enemy, if we can sense further, if we can understand better, uh, and then we can do the, the door kicking, you know, better than anybody can because Americans are badass. You know, they can do that shit. Yep. Um, then we'll be we'll be winning. So, so this was this was this is a unique assignment, and it's um, it's in a unique place, and and but man, it's powerful. The things that we're doing here are are informing. Um, inform us in a way that we never we probably never thought possible before they thought about army futures demand and the people that thought about that were really smart way smarter than me as long as uh nobody armors futures command wants to change the uniform again for like the ninth time in my 23 years okay just just can we just get static with the uniform a little bit you know no more berets either okay just you know i hope you guys are smart but you're not that smart i kid but nonetheless it was uh, (laughs) That's funny. It's funny that I sat on the Army Uniform Board the other day. We talked about uniforms. Oh, really? We're not not changing. We're not not that I know of. Let me put the disclaimer in there. We're not changing that I know of the the combat uniform. Thank God. um, I'll I'll say, here's my chief reality officer check. The beret was the worst decision in the last 50 years of the United States Army. Period. Okay. No disrespect. No disrespect to General Shinseki, but that worst decision ever. Period. That's just you know that's Mark talking. Okay. Now that I'll get in trouble for that later on, I appreciate that. Um, All right, Sergeant Major. Let me ask you this real quick, and and we'll wrap things up here shortly. Um, You know, think of two of the three of the most seminal moments in your career. What does Army's Future Command Sergeant Major Brian Hester tell Sergeant Brian Hester? Sergeant First Class Brian Hester, at those moments, what are the words of advice he goes back and gives to that young sergeant, that young soldier, um, that that he would need to know and stick with throughout the rest of his career? Um, a couple things come to mind, and I I, I think it starts with um, I think I really I go back to you know what we do in the army is we build leaders to fight and win, right? So. Um, lead, lead yourself, right? Be, be deliberate in the things that you are going to do or you are going to say. And know that you're going to make some mistakes along the way. Um, and that's okay. We all, we all make mistakes, right? But 
um, the more um, the more informed you can be, um, the more the more deliberate you can be um, with leading your people. Uh, and and then you know the second part of that is is you got to listen to your people, right? It goes back to you know texts and emails are good for passing information, but they're not they're not really as good for dialogue. And and uh, so you know be be a people person, right? We're in a people business. Be a people person. Lead yourself. Be a people person. Uh, and I know some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. I'm probably technically I'm probably really a little bit in between. But I've been trained for 32 years to talk to people, and and so, um, and then um, you know, think about risk, right? Um, because risk is an important factor. Um, that we as as soldiers and leaders need to, to to try to be able to understand. You know, nobody's going to be able to understand all risks associated with all things. But but at Echelon, if if our young leaders are thinking about risk and they're mitigating at their level, and then our middle management's doing the same thing, and then our senior leaders are doing the same thing, we have a really good opportunity to um, to take some of the bad things out of the equation, right? So um, be a good leader of yourself, be a good example, um, you know, be, be a trustworthy person, be, you know, be, be thinking about the risks associated with the things that you're going to do. Um, and, and I think we'll, we'll all be in a, a much better place. There's, you know, this, all this stuff is hard, right? And, and, you know, the, being in the army and being a soldier and being a leader and, and understanding risk is is um, pretty difficult, but I see I see people do it so so well each and every day, and I think, man, why couldn't I be that good? Um, but but it's uh, that's the power of all these people that come in come in the military and serve, and all the different experiences and great ideas and stuff they bring together, and so yeah, it's it. I do it all. I mean, I just say I do this all over again. Um, and I, I wouldn't, you know, people always ask me, well, would you ever change anything? Would you ever do anything differently? And then, you know, and in my moments of weakness, I think to myself, yeah, I would do this or I would do that. Um, but I don't think I would change much. Um, and that's, um, you know, you know, do what do what makes you feel good. That's that's good for those people around you. Um, as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical, and and you know, you know, be a be a trustworthy, good person, lead yourself, and understand risk, and you'll be a you'll be a better person for it all around. Whether you decide to stay in the army, get out of the army, join the army, you know, go go play wide receiver for the Broncos, whatever it is that you're going to do, those are those are pretty good things to to think about. Yeah, my only regret was uh, whatever I ate in the chow hall and bag that they gave me dysentery. I wish I would have skipped that meal that day. That, that would have been enough for me. Yeah, me uh, too. Yeah, that was that, that was a, that was a bad three weeks afterwards, uh, to say the least. But uh, I, I kid. But uh, you know, listen, um, it's been great talking. It's been great getting to know you. Uh, I, I can say with a fair amount of certainty, at some point through my career, I've probably crossed paths with somebody who crossed paths with you. Um, and you talk about that leadership factory uh, that we are, and uh, I I am the leader I am today because I have been around other great leaders throughout this organization who have made me better, 
uh, iron, iron sharpens iron kind of deal. Um, and and even at this late stage of my career, I'm, I'm never someone who isn't looking to re, to refine and get better every single day and every single time I put on the uniform to try to be a little bit better than I was the last time I did it. And I think that's, you know, that, that backbone of the NCO core, I've gotten that from many of the people that you've chosen to let along the way. Uh, and the connectivity between all of us, I think, is there one way or another, right? Um, whether it's units that we've shared or whatever, that, that mentality is born and bred by the people, as you referenced, the people who who served in those units before and continue to serve in them now. So all that collective tissue and connective tissue together um, leads me to say thank you for everything that you've done uh, and will continue to do going forward. Wherever your destination takes you, wherever your your next assignment takes you, whether it's uh, at home to the wife when she said enough is enough or – uh, it is on to the, back to Fort Polk again for one more excruciating round uh, in Louisiana. God bless it. How many times did you go to that hellhole? Um, beyond that, you know, again, I, uh, you and your family, the best of luck to your wife, to your son, your grandkids, and everything else. It, it's been incredibly uh, great to speak with you in, in your candor and your honesty, and I certainly appreciate it all. Uh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. I appreciate what you do, you know, bringing awareness and, and having these good discussions and this has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I don't often get to have two hours worth of fun in my day. No, that's not true. I, I do that all the time. But, but I mean, really just to talk and, and share. And, and I think that's, that's very, uh, it's very important. It goes back to some of the things that we were talking about, um, being, being a bit vulnerable and, and, you know, expressing some of your own personal opinions that are informed by your service that are, that are meaningful to you and people around you. So, so thanks for what you do. Um, um, to everybody that's out there, um, God bless you, you know, happy holidays, um, um, you know, safe travels to you if you're moving around. Uh, and then, um, you know, we, um, our, our army loves being our army for the people of our nation. And, and that's, that's about as true as I can put it from Brian Hester's perspective. And, and this is, uh, this has been a really, really cool last couple hours. Thanks for doing this for me. Command Sergeant Major Brian Hester, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 